is Living Catholic with Father Don Wolf. Living Catholic is a fresh look at issues confronting each of us today. This show deals with living out the Catholic faith, what that means for Catholics, as well as the impact on the rest of society. You certainly don't have to be Catholic to enjoy this show. And now, your host, Father Don Wolf. Welcome, Oklahoma, to Living Catholic. I'm Father Don Wolf, pastor of Sacred Heart Parish and rector of the Shrine of Blessed Stanley Rother. 105 years ago yesterday, on November the 11th, 1918, an armistice went into effect, ending the Great War. War had been declared by the major European powers over a series of days in August of 1914, and the war had raged for four years across the face of Europe, in the Middle East. It involved naval actions from the Western Pacific to the coast of Latin America and the movement of armies from the borders of France to the expanses of Arabia. After four years, the fighting had stopped and the world paused to pick up the pieces. When the war began, Europe had enjoyed more or less a century of peace and prosperity. With the development of technology and the modern application of economic theory, the entire continent was richer than ever before. The principal European economic power was Germany. It was poised to become the largest economy and the dominant power on the entire continent as it had maintained its uh, solid progress in science and technology. The fastest growth during the second decade of the 20th century had been recorded in Russia as it began to wake up to the realities of industrialization and France was recovering from the upheavals that had defined it all through the 19th century so successfully that it had become a source of capital and engineering expertise throughout the world. Even in the hinterlands, nestled among the sharp mountainsides, the cities and provinces there began to prosper. Little Sarajevo, a minor city in the aging Austrian Empire, had installed an electric tram, the second city in the world to do so. Education and medicine, chemistry and industry, business and charity, missionary life and literary exploration— all of them had sprouted and grown in the European peace of the previous century and had begun to dominate the imagination as never before. By 1914, it appeared the states making up this dynamic, irrepressible continent were poised to enter a whole new phase. Life had never been better. One of the cheerleaders of this new age, the short story writer and journalist Stefan Zweig, spent his career amazed at what his corner of the world in Vienna had become. He was one of the shining stars among the Jewish glitterati of that generation who had grown up in the most liberated and the most successful venues the world had seen up to that time. Everywhere he looked, a world never seen before was peeking out from, the beneath, the, from beneath the old covers of settled European life, limbering up to carry everyone into an entirely new reality. Music, art, psychology, physics, literature, poetry, history— you name it, and it was becoming something completely new. Each part of life was like pewter turning into gold. What had been dull and serviceable had become shiny and new. His encomiums were part of an entire chorus of those who were breathless of, in their admiration of what had happened. The whole world had been knit together into a global economy the world had never seen before. With transatlantic cable, what happened in London or Berlin was communicated in seconds to New York or San Francisco. A letter or package mailed in Rome could reach Paris in three days for the first time since the height of the Roman Empire. The science fiction novels of the time foresaw airplanes, the era of submarines and ocean exploration, space travel, and even robots. They did this by looking at what had already happened 
and with the power of imagination access to money, what might happen. It was a heady time for everybody. Most especially, it was a time in which many predicted that war had become impossible. Everybody knew militaries were increasing and arms production had become part of the industrial growth of the age, but the purpose and the prospects of conflict seemed less and less productive. Several economists, in fact, had predicted that the economics of the time dictated the interdependence of all of the economies of the major countries such that any interruption would be so destructive as to be suicidal. Money and prosperity were making war unthinkable. They actually believed it all the way up to August 1914. In the opening days of August 1914, this optimism was undone as the nations threw away their security, bridled at their dependence, and opted for war. Following the steps toward the declaration of war is more like falling down a staircase than examining a timeline as we look back. Austria had put pressure on Serbia to stop its terrorism campaign against the Austrian Empire's growth in the Balkans. Russia guaranteed Serbian aspirations. So when Austria moved against Serbia following the assassination of the Archduke, Russia mobilized for war against Austria. Germany then mobilized for war against Russia. But since France guaranteed Russian ambitions, France mobilized as well. So Germany declared war against her, France, and invaded neutral Belgium on their way to France. And finally, Britain entered the war on the side of Belgium and France and Russia against Germany and Austria-Hungary. In a moment, like marbles bouncing out of a tray, what had been ordered and solemn became scattered and random. Eventually, Japan, Italy, Romania, Bulgaria, Turkey, and finally the United States would enter the war on one side or the other. It became a world war. We've likely become inured at at the scale of destruction that modern wars can cause. And for Europe at the time, though, it was as if a bomb had exploded inside of a cathedral. Everything holy to the European mind and presumed to be sacred to all was tumbled down and stepped on in pursuit of victory and domination. Classmates who had lived with one another as they went to to the same schools, business partners who had worked for the same prophets, bishops who had served the same pope, suddenly found themselves rent apart facing one another across hostile lines. In a few weeks, almost 11 million men had been plucked out of civilian life, issued uniforms and weapons, were transported to the frontiers of their countries, and were fighting for their futures. The world seemed as if it had come apart. On the 100th anniversary of the beginning of the fighting, a video series was produced explaining the origins of the war and its subsequent history. In between the various topics, the video would go to a scene of the figure of death, a skeleton clothed in a cape and cowl, swinging a scythe. At each new moment in the lead-up to and then the pursuit of the war, the scythe would come flying down in another cutting stroke. It's what so many in the world felt at the time, as if the demons themselves had been sprung from their minor temptations and were now running the world. The great powers and the master machinery of each country were turned toward destruction and death. It was chaos and death everywhere. For four years, the countries caught up in this madness drunkenly lurched at one another as they sought escape from the madness of the warfare that had descended upon them. Every safeguard on civility and decency was eventually removed until every advance in science and technology was harnessed to achieve breakthroughs on the battlefield. What every country on the continent would have abjured as inhuman in July of 1914 
every combatant was willing to risk as an innovative possibility to win the war. As Winston Churchill said, the nations tried everything but cannibalism and refrained from that only because it had, quote, doubtful utility, unquote. Poison gas, aerial bombardment of civilians, unrestricted submarine warfare, the invasion of neutral nations, starvation, distant blockade, and economic subversion of of enemy economies, they were all employed to gain some advantage in the back and forth of the war. The nations of Europe, steeped in the values and proclamations of Christian life for centuries, went after one another with a savagery they could hardly believe of themselves. And to their surprise, it continued for more than four years, at the end of which they were holding on only by threads. It eventually came to the armistice negotiated by the German government with the other belligerents. The German army command, who had run the civilian government in Germany for more than two years, abandoned the government control and gave it back to civilians. They did this so that they wouldn't have to take the reins and make peace. When the shooting stopped, the German army actively claimed that it had been betrayed by the weak-hearted politicians, although the generals themselves had pleaded for peace because they knew they couldn't go on. It was typical of the perfidy of the system in place. Indeed, the German politician who signed the peace treaty officially ending the war was assassinated when he got back home because of his participation in stopping the war. What had begun in confusion and carried on in violence had ended in duplicity. But when the guns stopped firing, everyone was grateful. That happened at 11 o'clock in the morning on the 11th day of the 11th month of that year, 1918. It probably could have ended, it probably could not have ended much before then, but one wonders at those soldiers who were killed at, say, nine o'clock that morning, who might have been saved had the deadline been moved forward, even though the timing might not have been so poetic. But at least the bullets and the shells at that time were no longer flying, except in those places where they continued flying. For the next four years, all of Central and Eastern Europe, as well as Central Asia, was aflame with war. Russia, the Baltic states, Poland, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Georgia, Greece, and Turkey were involved in active warfare with one another. They were anxious to settle their boundaries and their scores with one another. Much of the map we are now familiar with was decided at this time with astounding changes and major milestones recorded. The Greek presence, for example, in the Eastern Mediterranean, which had been continuous for 3,000 years, ended at this time as Turkey became its own country. Israel, as a political entity, was reestablished. The countries of Iraq, Lebanon, and Jordan took on their familiar boundaries, creating nations made up of peoples and tribes and languages that had never before been amalgamated together, and set the stage for the squabbles and battles and confusions that would last for decades to come. World War I helped to create the 20th century, and it's propelling the 21st century in every way. There are a few things to learn as we stand at this remove from this auspicious date. As the historian John Lukash insists, the 20th century was a short century. It began in 1914 with the declaration of war and ended in 1989 with the fall of the Berlin Wall. A case could be made at this time encompassing World War I, the Russian Revolution, World War II, the Cold War, and the Wars of Liberation, that it was all simply one long world war all itself. Whatever it was, it was the 20th century, and it was made by war. And as in all wars, 
there are lessons to be learned. The first of which is the most obvious. Wars are easy to begin, but they are not easy to end. Once the great movement of armies had engulfed West, Eastern and Western Europe in the first days of August 1914, and all of the great European empires had declared for the Axis or the Allies, the dynamism of struggle was put in motion. But once begun, it had no natural ending point. No one knew how to complete what had been started. The armies were too large and the industries of the countries too robust simply to go down to defeat. Even after major strategic setbacks and catastrophic military mistakes and shortages and interruptions, the movement of millions of men and the death of soldiers and swaths of hundreds of thousands, after all of that, the countries continued to fight. In 1916, the Pope tried to get each country to lay out what they wanted from the war so as to begin a peace process. If each side could talk about what they hoped to gain, at least the negotiators could begin to talk to each side. But the pontiff's request went nowhere. No country was willing to put on paper what it sought from the war. Apparently, no country really knew what other than that they wanted to win. It was bloodshed and embroilment and delusion from beginning to, to end. It's, cleasy, it's easy to be clear-minded as a war begins. The goal is to defeat the enemy. But as the struggle continues, it's not so easy to understand when victory is achieved. If every nation going to war imagines complete domination as the ultimate endpoint, you know, occupying the land, running the government, directing the people, and having its way in every respect, anything short of this ideal is less than victory. But if there's no understanding and agreement of what is to be gained by war, war might not be the answer. We might also take note parenthetically that even in situations in which all of these goals have been met, unless the people there don't consider themselves beaten, there's no victory then either. When World War I finally did come to a close, the German army picked up from where it had fought on the Western Front in France from 1914 to 1918 and marched back to Germany. None of the war had touched the German heartland directly, and the armies went home in good order. After a year or so, the story was spread there in Germany that since the armies had not been defeated in the field, they had been betrayed at home. With this began the dynamics that prompted the Second World War. This titanic struggle was a continuation of the First World War. From 1914 to 1918, with millions of casualties, many more millions of soldiers in the field, the expenditure of countless tons of ammunition, the beggaring of the treasuries of dozens of nations, and the end of three empires and the annihilation of four royal families, and the destruction of an entire civilization, and more than 1,500 continuous days of fighting all around the world, nothing was finally settled in this great war. The armistice simply marked a prelude to all that was to follow. Wars sometimes don't end at all. The second learning is also sobering. It is, there is no one to protect us from ourselves. We're the masters of our own situation. The world in which we live is our world. It has been entrusted to us to care for and to manage as best we can. When we don't, there is no other power at work to save us from our mistakes or to alter our decisions. Unless we do the work of governing ourselves, we'll be left to live with what escapes out of control and out of our grasp. One presumption on the part of all those involved in this war was that the common boundaries of humanity would prevent one side or the other from stepping over the line of civility into brutality. 
The war was only a few days old when it became clear this was a faulty view. From the beginning, each side used the other's brutality as an excuse for its own. Once begun, there was no stopping. It is true the standards of the First World War when it came to the treatment of civilians or the disposition of prisoners of war were generally better than in the Second World War, and it is true the gigantic inhumanity of the Second War outpaced that of the First War by magnitudes. But this only reinforces the affirmation that once begun, such violations of humanity take on a power of their own and stop only when it runs out of victims or runs out of time. The, the annihilation of the Jews in Central Europe in 1943 had its inspiration in the genocide of the Armenians in Turkey in 1916. Mushroom clouds over Japan in 1945 had their inspiration from the Zeppelin raids over London in 1915. And the war to the death on the Russian steppes in 1941 had its beginning moments, had its beginning moments in the occupation of Romanov territory in 1917. There was no one to rescue them from themselves. It's our fantasy to imagine something will happen to rescue us when we have overstepped ourselves, but it was not to be in 1914. This seemed to come as a surprise to everyone who found themselves locked in this brutal struggle for years with no exit. There is a book yet to be written concerning how the major newspapers all over the world called for war as the only way to ensure national pride and to guarantee communal greatness. And yet those same newspapers were surprised when their countries went to war. The owners and editors did stir up national sentiments and propelled their leaders for war. And yet these same people were puzzled when there seemed to be no way out of the conundrums their bellicosity demanded. Even the Tsar and the Kaiser supposedly the supreme leaders of their people in Germany and Russia, were at least in part intimidated into war by the insistence of these voices in the press. But once began, there was no voice from the heavens to open the minds of the leaders to the pathway out of the war. Oddly, this was recognized by the church when the pope began trying to talk to the prime ministers and kings concerning their aims. He knew he had to find some common ground. Only negotiation and compromise could bring some measure of peace to the peoples. There'd be no angels descending to fight and no flash of light to intimidate the governments in their capitals. Those in charge would have to decide and then act. They'd have to act to end the war. And until they did, the war would go on. And it did go on because no one did decide or did act. We are the stewards of our lives, both personal and national. Unless we act, nothing happens. The third conclusion is also obvious. War brings with it brutal consequences. These are almost never described or accounted for in the histories that we read, but they are as real as the sunrise. We can describe the movement of armies and the redrawing of maps, but the impact of war is much deeper and vastly more profound than those factors. When a country has sacrificed millions of its young men and has mortgaged the future in its pursuit of its war aims, it affects everyone for as long as they live. A friend of mine told me of her grandmother from Hungary, who was born in 1903. She lived through the First World War as a young woman and the Second World War as the mother of a small child. Although she eventually immigrated to the U.S., according to her granddaughter, she lived her whole life as if the next war was just over the horizon. There are whole countries that are this way. When it's time to fight, and there are legitimate times to take up arms, those costs have to be considered. 
At the end of the fighting there in 1918, there were millions of Germans who had been brutalized by what they had seen and done. One of them had spent four years in the trenches watching his world explode all around him. His name was Adolf Hitler. He spoke the language of many of those who came back home with the crepe of defeat um, over their shoulders and the limitation of their humanity broken. Germany and the rest of the world paid the price for the damage to his psyche and to the damage of the men of his country. The careless map-making in the Middle East at the, at the end of the war set the stage for the wars of the 21st century that we're still fighting. And the willful disregard for life set in motion in 1914 as the armies cut down one another in rows sees its fruit come to harvest in the willful and intentional slaughter of the innocent in our own domestic policies and points of view. Think of it. What would have been regarded as a heinous crime in the early 20th century, abortion, is now regarded by more than 100 million people in the U.S. as a fundamental human right. It doesn't take long to travel from the dismissal of the death of tens of thousands on the battlefield as the necessary price to pay for defense to excusing the deaths of millions in our clinics as a necessary outlet for our lifestyle. And the U.S. is the place where the sound of battle was most faint, and yet these things have taken place here. No matter where, when the tuned strings of our humanity are unstrung, the music stops. The the brutality of war is never restricted to the battlefield. If there is to be war, everyone will suffer everywhere. Our only hope in life is to trust in God's initiative for us. When Adam and Eve had sinned and their eyes were opened, they rushed to the shadows to hide. God called out to them in the shade and asked, where are you? This is the question to transform our lives. Once we are always striving to hear and are pushed to answer. It's an intero- it's an inter- it is an interrogatory much more important than to answer whether we will go to heaven or go to hell. By hiding in the shadows, by running away from our sin, by our willingness to tempt our future, by our appetites today, we run the risk of creating hell on earth right now. Perhaps the best thing we can do, especially on this anniversary, is to answer, Here I am, Lord. What would you have me do? When the shooting stops and the armies go home, the world looks to peace. But there is no peace until it flows from out of our lives. Unless this date is the beginning of peace as the fruit of forbearance and forgiveness, as the product of the practice of sacramental sensibilities and prayerful lives, then there will be only more war, and it won't be far away. Back in just a moment. Welcome back to our final segment, Faith in Verse. We have a poem today called, The Riots We See on TV. When we weren't looking, the storm clouds gather and the winds shifted. The fair, clear day was no more as the promise good weather lifted. And we were left to fend off beating hail and the crashing thunder peals of the violence unleashed when nature gathered her strength and her energies congealed. Not unexpected, no. We see such storms often in our recent history. The only surprise is that such a time would come upon us as mystery. But we don't take the time to look, never open the window curtain to peek out. Clotting clouds and rolling thunderheads can gather easily about. Until the first flash of lightning stabs our gloomy office and halls, and we look up to notice, finally, to hear weather's inevitable call. We'll say over and over again to each other, what a surprise we were dreading. 
Such storms have arisen among us again before we were aware or ready. Puzzled, we will endure our barren trees and pockmarked houses. Say again, we will prepare if circumstances then will arouse us. That's the riots we see on TV. Our hope is in the Lord alone, and that's what we strive to um, to talk about here at uh, Living Catholic. I hope that in the weeks to come, you can continue to join us as we continue to explore and the foundations of what our belief leads us to and the promise of the Lord brings to us. Hope to see you then. Living Catholic is a production of Oklahoma Catholic Radio. To learn more, visit okcr.org.